Hello, this is Brighter Evening, a podcast where we discuss fun, food, and ideas to make the world brighter. Good evening, my name is Josh, and this is Brighter Evening. Last time we spoke, we were looking at the future we lost, and in particular, we were talking about some things uh, throughout the past. Uh, different, different aspects of computing that were designed as commonplace and have since started to erode. We started by comparing the goal of a 3M computer, which was to have a what was considered then a very high-performance computer, a million instructions per second, a one million pixel display, and a megabyte of memory for less than $10,000 or around $10,000, and how you can get a far more powerful computer for around $35 or $50 or $70, or depending on what you're looking at, not to mention the phones and, and laptops that we have. And we talked about how computers are a general-purpose tool. We talked about the mother of all demos and how in the 60s and 70s, the future was invented with you know these researchers looking at what was possible with computers and with the Palo Alto Research Center of Xerox. Then we started talking about how computers were viewed and used in early days. It was all hobbyists. Um, there, there wasn't a strong distinction between user and programmer, right? Computers, if you just got a computer and turned it on, a home computer, it would boot to basic. Uh, if you look at the early days of BBSs, I think we maybe talked about this a little bit, but not too much before. In the early days of, of computer networking, you had the, I guess you'd call them commercial or professional or academic research networks. You had the institutional networks, and that's where the internet came from, the ARPANET. But there was another network that was out there. There was the network of BBSs. You had FidoNet, and you had the individual BBSs themselves. So if you've never learned about a BBS, you should definitely check out the documentary on it, um, which should be linked in the show notes. Um, BBSs were a really amazing thing uh, for those who were involved. The idea was you'd buy a modem for your computer and connect it to your phone line, and there were a variety of ways to do that. Um, the early ones, the ones that you know often show up in movies and stuff, are op- audio couplers. And so they, you take the handset and put it on a, a little reader thing, and it makes tones and, and receives the tones. But later modems almost all exclusively plugged directly into the jack and probably had a pass-through for your phone. And uh, you could, if you wanted to, most, most people that I've talked to about modems, their sole use for them was getting on the Internet, right? Early ISPs or, or online services like AOL or, to a lesser extent, Prodigy or CompuServe. You'd get online and, you know, access internet resources. But that wasn't the earliest use. I I would imagine the earliest use was probably dialing into some kind of terminal system on a bigger system that was out there, some mainframe, dialing into your university or, or whatever. But another use was you could dial another person. And if you had your software set up right and they had their software set up right and the modems were set up right, at a minimum, if you typed something in on your computer screen, it would show up in theirs real time. It was pretty neat. And BBSs came about because a couple of guys, one was a hardware guy, one was a software guy, sat down and said, hey, you know what would be cool is if in our computer club we let people dial in and post messages to like a bulletin board. And, they, and, and so they did that. They allowed people to go in and type up a message and post it. And then other members of the club could go read the message and post things. And that was sort of the fir- one of the very first discussion forums that was online. But it wasn't part of the internet. You dialed the phone number and it picked up to someone's computer in someone's house, and that's how BBSs were. It was a hobbyist network, and it was available for many years before internet access was available for people in their house. This was a user-driven phenomenon. The earliest people wrote their own software. The later people, of course, used software that was available, and they could make the system their own. And there were all kinds of BBSs out there. There were ones that were dedicated to um, you know, hobbyists in computers, of course. There were ones that were dedicated to artists that would create uh, ASCII art or ANSI art, which were um, artistic forms that were based on text characters because most of these BBSs were from an era where sending images was too expensive. And so computer art was a thing. And, and ASCII art still lives on. There's some 
uh, repositories out there of, of ASCII and ANSI art, and they're very interesting to look at. Some of them are really cool. Um, you know, some are very simple. They're they're kind of a fun thing because it's it's a medium where you're you have a very limited palette of options. And so, you know, necessity is the the mother of all innovation, right? People got creative and came up with cool ways to do things. Some of those things live on today, right? Emoticons have largely been supplanted by emojis, right? But you still recognize colon dash close parenthesis as a smiley face. And that was sort of one of those early innovations that came from the era of text being the primary mode of communication. Um, and, and that is our past. That was the future that we were moving towards. One where computers empowered their owners, empowered their users to do more and to be more. The distinction with today is computers and phones are increasingly designed to empower their creator. If you have an Apple phone, Apple chooses what your phone is capable of. And you may not realize that, and you may not see it, but they do. There have been apps pulled from the App Store that were critical of Apple. Apple doesn't allow anyone to put an app in the App Store that uses a custom web browser engine. Now, it's a pretty arcane technical detail, but it's pretty draconian if you want to be Firefox. You can't actually put real Firefox out. They have to put a fake Firefox that uses the same thing internally as Safari does. Likewise with Google. Google chooses what goes in the Google Play Store. And they've definitely pulled some apps for reasons that may be a little bit questionable. Microsoft is trying to drive that way with Windows. And Mac OS, for that matter, right? Mac OS is, is trying... To, the, the, Apple's definitely trying to push Mac OS towards the App Store model. And the App Store model means that they're the the judge, jury, and executioner about what can go on, their, on that computer, not you, the user. Not easily. And I think the more they can lock it down, the better. The mobile platforms were born this way. Right, the earliest mobile platforms that got popular were iOS and then Android, and they were fairly locked down. Android is less locked down. You do have the option of of turning off uh, trusted sources or something like that, and loading in applications that you didn't get from the App Store. There are limited circumstances where that's safe. It, it's be, because of the nature of the Android world or the mobile operating system world, I should really say, it's not the safest thing to do outside of some very limited circumstances. Like uh, if you get the F Droid store and it's, uh, you know, you're focused on these free and open source applications, there are ways to do it safely. But it's it's also just as easily to you know, get viruses on your phone that way. Um, and and in the case of Apple, there's no way to go around them. Right? They don't. They don't make it easy. They work very, very hard to make sure that they have control over what your phone can do. They make sure you can't run any software that they haven't approved. Now, some people will make the argument that that's curation. They're going to make the argument that this is for the good of the user. That the that Apple knows better than you do as the owner of the phone. I mean, to me, that's an argument that Apple really owns the phone, and you're just paying them for the privilege of holding it. You know, there's a difference between defaults and a difference between good, you know, good uh, security and limitations. And what you get here is limitations. If Apple doesn't get their 30% cut, you don't get access to it. And this has been problematic for for a number of companies who've said, you know what, no, we, we want to own our own platform. We want to own our relationship with our customers because we care about their experience, maybe using our services too expensive. Apple at one point was charging, I think it was Spotify, uh, their 30% fee to pay through the Apple platform. And of course, they're not paying themselves that fee. So they're immediately putting Spotify at a disadvantage against Apple Music. And Apple's able to abuse their position as a platform provider to do this. Now, there's, again, people who make the argument that Apple's not a monopoly because, at best, they have about a 45% market share in the United States. It's lower elsewhere. But when you're on an Apple phone, you don't have any choices, and it's not a simple thing to switch platforms. 
particularly because of these App Store rules where you purchase through Apple or you pur purchase through Google. So if you switch between operating systems, you don't have the choice of taking all the stuff you paid for over. If you pay the software producer directly, then they have the choice of saying, hey, you know what, if you bought our Apple version, you can use our Android version. If you bought our, our iOS version, you can use your, the Mac OS or the Windows version, right? Like the, the providers, the software uh, providers, the programmers that do this stuff, the companies behind it, they can make that choice. But Apple makes that choice for you. This is where we lost the future. And it's not lost permanently. There is some hope out there, but this is what we've lost. These platforms are becoming increasingly locked down. Microsoft, if they had their way, you'd buy all your software through the App Store. And same thing with Apple, with Mac OS. Because of the history of desktop computers, it's harder to do that because it's always been the case you can go buy software in a box and put a CD in your computer or a floppy disk in your computer. It's always been the case that you could go download software from a BBS or from the internet and run it. And so they still have to support that workflow, but they're making it less convenient, more, more of a non-mainstream way to do things. They're making it so that it's more restricted. The argument is that it's for your own good because it's more secure. And it is a more secure default. But if they don't give you an option to get out of it, which on, on desktop computing, you know, laptops and desktops, they still do. But if they don't give you an option to get out of it, then you're trapped. You can only do what they say. And this means that the computer is no longer serving you, it's serving them. Right? We've, we've seen this. Microsoft abused their monopoly position in the early 90s to basically kill the company Netscape. Eventually they got bought by, I think it was AOL Time Warner at the time, and spun off Mozilla, and we still have Firefox and a lot of the other Mozilla stuff that's out there, like SeaMonkey and Thunderbird and stuff like that. But Firefox is, of course, the thing they're best known for. Right? We've, we've seen this play out. But one of the reasons the IBM PC took over is because it was an open platform. It wasn't the best platform. In fact, for graphics and sound, for a long time, it wasn't a very good platform compared to its competitors. It took a long time for Windows to catch up in quality to where Mac OS was. Although, you could argue that by sometime in Windows 3.1.1, or certainly 95, it had you know, similar quality. There are other operating systems out there. And the IBM PC being open meant that it was possible to run those alternative operating systems. People have forever. In, in the early days, right, when DOS was the main software people used or the main operating system people used, there were other versions of DOS that were compatible, at least largely. There was Dr. DOS. Uh, there was, uh, I can't remember very many of them. I've seen the names before. And Microsoft at one point tried to make it so that their flagship software, which I believe was Windows 95, wouldn't work with it and gave a weird cryptic error message. Eventually, they had to pull that out. Um, you know, but 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 there have been other things. Netware, as far as I understand, was a networking server system that was its own operating system. And then you could get, you know, network Netware-compatible stuff if you wanted to have a file-sharing network in your office or house or whatever. Um... You know, Linux ran originally only on the IBM PC or PC-compatible systems, IBM PC-compatible systems, starting in, I think, 91 or 93. And a whole, you know, thanks to the GNU project, there was a whole user space available that went from just, you know, this kernel that could talk to the hardware plus some applications and, you know, graphical stuff. And it, it's an operating system, uh, or I should really say a group of operating systems that have really matured a lot. There's also um, free, open, and NetBSD were, were and are operating systems that can run on this same hardware. Because that hardware is open, you have the choice to say, you know what? I want to try this other thing. I don't want to use the Microsoft one. I want to use the the Linux one. I want to use the BSD one. I want to I want to use one of these weird operating systems. I want to use Haiku OS or uh, BOS. BOS is a great example. There's an alternative operating system, 
in like the late 90s and early 2000s. It was way ahead of its time in terms of performance. It could run multiple videos simultaneously, which now isn't that big of a deal, but then then it was, and it could do it smoothly. It was designed with um, multiple cores and processors in mind, which was way ahead of the curve because computers in those days didn't really come with that, at least not home computers. It was pretty close to becoming Mac OS, like OS X, OS X, the version of Mac OS that's out there now. Apple very, very nearly bought the BOS company, but when they hired back Steve Jobs and bought Next, they went with his operating system, right? And the the one they were using at Next, which was based on BSD, actually, and, and they brought that up to being, you know, a full full operating system that was uh, that was usable for consumers. It took a while, it especially took a while for personal computers to catch up in performance to make it a, a really great operating system to use. And, you know, I've I've definitely heard people say that they think Mac OS peaked a while back and hasn't been as good since. I I don't know. I'm not um I'm not an expert on the history of that platform or anything. I've I've used Macs. I use them sometimes, but um you know, I'm I I haven't used it enough to say like when the peak was. I I really don't think I could say that with any any one operating system. I mean, I think they're all evolving and getting better in in some ways and more challenging in other ways and things. We do see it, right? And I think I think it's something a lot of us feel and can't really articulate. We can't really put into words that feeling of something's off. Something's not quite where it should be. We've all become accustomed to our privacy being violated. Right? We use these services, these companies like Google and Facebook, and they record a tremendous amount of information about us. And we use the service, their services in the way they want us to. Some of the older Google services were better about letting you use them the way you want to. Right? Gmail in particular still allows you to connect a normal email client to it, separate from their web interface, if you want to use it differently. But they still get access to your information. They still see all your emails. Right? Facebook has not been shy about the fact that they're building a network of every person on Earth. At least that's their goal. And they're trying to find out as much as they can about you. And you install the Facebook app on your phone, it will do everything it can to take as much information from your phone as possible. Um, and you could see this. I, I haven't had Facebook, uh, the app on my phone, for a long time. But I installed it on a uh, version of Android a long time ago, and it took 30% off of my battery life because it was doing so many things to get as much data as it could. Um, I mean, it's not an uncommon experience from that era, right? It's it's another circumstance of this platform provider. In this case, it wasn't the phone platform provider. It was the social network platform provider trying to control my device. Now, in this case, I could take it off. I could at least disable it. I had some control. But... You know, this stuff kind of is built in in many cases, and you don't always have the control you want. When we were talking last time, we talked about spreadsheets and how spreadsheets let you solve your own problem. And one of the points I made then was that I don't know that spreadsheets would be invented today. I don't think any company would want to because they'd rather sell you the individual solutions than selling you something that lets you solve your own problems, right? It took something like 15 years to get them from a proposed idea to a workable solution, and probably another 15 before they were generally available to a lot of people. Maybe another 20, I'm not sure. But certainly 30 years from their proposal, they were usable and, and generally available. And there are great spreadsheet applications available, right? Google Sheets, Microsoft Excel, LibreOffice Calc, OpenOffice Calc. I haven't really tried Caligra um, spreadsheet. I forget the name of it. Um, Apple Sheets. There's a number of them I'm not as familiar with, but they're all pretty powerful, and they certainly can solve a lot of problems. 
And there's an expectation that that style of software exists. I think it's sort of like uh, CAD programs. I've never really used a CAD program. I've just, you know, looked at, at kind of how they work and talked to people who've used them. You know, these uh, industrial designers and stuff, and they use SolidWorks, I think it's called, and there's AutoCAD. These are very complicated programs, and they have all kinds of programming tools built in and and all kinds of stuff to create shortcuts and automations. And that's because they came from an era of flexibility. I think Photoshop is the same way. Um, I'm not a Photoshop guy either. Um, I don't do much photo editing. But in Photoshop, they allow you to define workflows and and save them and, and use that so that you can automate your workflow a little bit. Now, part of that is that it's a professional tool. But you don't see that in a lot of professional tools today, at least not to the same extent. And the reason is simple. It's not an era of flexibility today. It's an era of we'll create a very simple interface and a happy path and no one deviates from it. Right? They they look at focus groups. Only 5% of people want this feature. And so everyone's chasing this kind of middle user. And they're not going for power users. I think the distinction between programmer and user really started to grow in the 90s, right? As you started getting better operating systems and better interfaces across the board, right? You had Windows 3.1 and Windows 95, Auto... Is it called Autodesk? I think was another workspace you could get on your computer. And, of course, Mac OS. The stuff was starting to be a lot easier to use. didn't require as much command line interaction. Um, the only operating systems that require command line interaction today are ones where you want to do that. Um, you know, that that's a big change compared to, you know, 1985, where most of them required some command line interaction. Um, but, you know, even if you're running a more obscure operating system, you know, you're, you're running an obscure version of Linux or, or some BSD or something like that, they all have graphical configuration tools and, you know, all graphical. But there are people who really like to type in commands because of the power that gives you. Some operating systems... Uh, well, desktop operating systems in general favor that approach. They still allow it. Um, it's just not required. So Microsoft released PowerShell, gosh, it was, I think, 2005, something like that, and they've continued to invest in it because it's a powerful tool for the people who need it. Mac OS has a terminal that runs standard Unix tools. Linux and BSDs have their terminals available, right? So these are all features that come from an earlier era with the kind of exception of PowerShell, which I think was added in to compete uh, in the server space, you know, with the automations that are done by administrators. These are all coming from an era where there was flexibility and, and programmability core to the system that was being created. Now, it wasn't an immediate jump into this lockdown world. I think it really took the success of the iPhone to really hammer home to people how the, the, the companies behind this sort of push, how successful you can be with that model, and and really how much they could take advantage of the market at the expense of this flexibility, right? They A perfect example I, I saw is I found a tool somewhere that lets you go through and search for a bunch of files and rename them. And they were charging like $25 for this tool. And I guess if you don't know how to do that and you've got a few thousand files to go through, it's probably worth paying the $25. But on the other hand, if you had learned a little bit of stuff to, to type into your computer, it's really not that hard to learn to do. And you could solve that problem with the tools that are built in. And it's also a reusable tool set. It doesn't do just the one job of I need to rename my files. It can also do other things like I want to set up an audio processing pipeline or I want to set up my system to publish. I've tried to learn those sorts of skills that are reusable because they, they help out when you want to do things, and and you can create your own automations, which is really cool. Um, so the, the shift from, like, programmable systems to these lockdown systems, I think did start happening in the 90s. And th that's, like I said, as the user base became more broad. But... The companies that were out there, you know, Microsoft was kind of the behemoth, right? 
they were still worried about making it easy to solve your own problems. And it wasn't just Microsoft, it was other people developing. Um, developing all kinds of software. So the two big things that sort of stand out to me are, first, this technology Microsoft released called Olay and Olay 2, or O-L-E. It stood for Object Linking and Embedding. And this is something I had to do some research to understand, uh, but in in like Windows 95 era, you could have a spreadsheet and you could have a, a you know a word document right a, te- a word processor document and you could have a video file and you could copy the spreadsheet and paste a portion of it into the the word processor document and then you could paste a video in and paste in a picture and they could all come from different applications and there could be a complete you know lack of compatibility between these applications as far as like different file formats they don't know about each other and yet it would all work and this olay technology was the thing that enabled that it was about making these applications work together well so that you could solve problems by using the best software um, another piece of customization now this isn't you know boot to basic it it doesn't require a high level of uh, practice and skill and learning to get into is customizable toolbars. Now, 90% of customers, I think, of any tool, any users of any software, probably never think about customizing their toolbars. But for people who use that software day in and day out, right? and you'd see this in word processing software, you'd see it in spreadsheet software, you could go in, modify what was in the toolbar to fit your workflow. right? And you still see this in some of those older high-end applications, they haven't taken that feature set away. But as far as I can tell, Microsoft has sort of taken that away from their, you know, word processors and spreadsheets and stuff. When you go into Office, you open and close things. You you can't really change what's in those little command palettes that are in there. They've even gotten away from the drop-down menus and gone for all this more icon approach, which, you know, that's just a personal grievance. But I, I think being able to read the name of things and, and have it organized is easier to learn over time, um, especially for features that are a little bit more obscure. You're, you're, especially if you're in an operating system that lets you search the menus. Mac OS lets you do that, which is pretty neat. So you can type in what you want and it'll help you find it. But, you know, we've moved away from that to, to a large extent, right? You don't go in and say, ah, what, you know, customize my toolbar. I want to have this button and that button. Uh, Chrome and Firefox kind of do that to a certain extent, but not many tools do. That was there to empower power users, right? Between that and, and Olay, you could do quite a lot customization-wise. Um, I think also about, you know, I think I mentioned stuff like HyperCard that was a programming environment that didn't really require you to know a ton of programming. Uh, there was the macro recorder that was in Windows 3.1 that let you, you know, automate keystrokes and clicks on your screen, which is pretty neat. We had this move at around that time, you know, as, as the 90s came to a close towards the web. If you were alive, you probably remember the original dot-com boom and, like, pets.com advertising at the Super Bowl. And then, you know, this kind of big crash and then the second kind of generation of web technologies that's done a lot better. There are a few companies that survived, right? Amazon most notably survived from the first dot-com boom. As things moved online, there was one major change, you know, and especially as home broadband got large and mobile internet connectivity where people are in an always on connection, it seems like we all just embraced this idea of the cloud. And if you ever wonder what the cloud is, it's just someone else's computer, right? All the stuff that you're connecting to in the internet is running on a computer, going over wires and fiber optics. It's someone else's computer. It's someone else's computer. When you're using an online service, you're using someone else's computer. They have control. And that also normalized the idea of other people owning your data. Right? It took away from the power of the computer in your hand, the computer on your desk, the computer under your desk. You know, I don't, I don't know what kind of computer you're using. But it took away from the idea that the power should be there and said it, it should be out in the cloud. And there's a good reason to do that. Because when it's in the cloud, 
you're talking to a computer that's got a high-speed, highly reliable network connection, and it's got a highly reliable power connection, and it's got a redundancy system where if it fails, another one can take over. And we get mad when it doesn't. Right? We all rushed towards this future of things being available anywhere we are. But we also moved to a future where we don't own our things. Our things are owned by someone else, and we're, we're just tenants, right? We have to rent our devices. The devices get old, and they don't get software updates anymore. You don't see that on desktop computers to the same extent. Maybe eventually an old enough system, you know, the CPU isn't supported anymore. But years of updates, unrelated systems, right? You buy a computer from Dell and you install Windows or Linux or whatever on it and it gets its updates and it works fine. And the new version comes out and you can install that. And if you switch from Dell to a no-name computer, right? You go to Fry's or Micro Center or something and buy their store brand computer. It works the same. The same software, all the updates come in. It's part of an open standard. You have some control. And if you're using the right operating systems, you have quite a bit of control. Maybe more than you want. I mean, it's up to you, right? You can you can go crazy and, and become a, a computer hobbyist and you know tinker with everything in the computer. That can be a lot of fun for people. Maybe you're just a user, but maybe you value your freedom more, and so you 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 know you pick something other than Mac OS or Windows. Maybe you don't. I don't know. What you value is up to you. But we we started moving over to these services, and we moved to services that are centralized and owned by someone else. We moved from purchasing and downloading music to renting music. You know, a lot of these things you do to you know to send emails. Emails don't live in your computer anymore. They live in on a website, right? Most people use gmail.com. Some people use Fastmail. Some people use Apple Mail. But a lot of that is living elsewhere. Now, there are people who do use the Apple email client on their phone or on their computer, or they'll use Outlook or the, the Windows Mail client, the Windows Live Mail, I think it's called. Some people use Thunderbird, right? Email is really one of the last great services that's truly open, it seems like in this move towards a broad market, we moved away from niche uses for many cases, as certainly for configurability and for people being able to solve those niche uses with general products. I don't know that power users are a priority anymore for most things, which is interesting because in some cases, power users are, are really the true users of products, but in enterprises, they're not the purchasers, and so power users aren't a priority. Um, you know, it's it's high-end tools. You know, it's it's Photoshop, it's CAD, it's programming languages, where you can grow as you use the tool and become an expert in that tool and build your own tools, right? If you can build a really good macro in your application, you've built your own tool that makes you more productive. Right? So if you define a, a workflow in Audacity that, that runs through and does what you need to, you know, to to produce a podcast, right? Something something I'm familiar with. That is you turning your your software into a tool that works better for you. You're making your own tool. And that is a really, really powerful thing. It it drives straight to the idea of the computer as a general purpose device. That's the future we need, right? One where you're empowered by your machine, where it makes you more powerful. Not the guy who made the machine, but the person who's using it. There were a few attempts at some point to try to make this happen. I almost call it the last flicker of openness in mainstream computing. It was this open web API API idea. It it was around at some point 
you know, in the, the early rage of, of mobile computing and Web 2.0 and all these buzzwords, you had these open APIs. Twitter's API was open. Facebook was relatively open. Google had some open ones. There's this tool called Yahoo Pipes that someone's made a new version of where if the API was open, you could drag and drop things to build a tool out of these web services. You were still using someone else's computer, but at least the part that was on your computer, you could define some things and merge it together and, and you had some control. They were trying to repl replicate the openness of your own local system out in the world. But over time, those things got closed down more and more. Yahoo Pipes was closed. There is a version someone else created. I think I've linked to it in the show notes. And now, closed services are the rule. Open services and open protocols, right? If you listen to, I think it's the second podcast or third podcast, that's protocols and products. They're the exception now, right? Email is still mostly open. I was just talking about that. Um, early on chat, IRC was the big one. It's still around. You know, you can get on IRC today and go find people to chat with. You can get your friends on there. There was a first wave of IM programs. They were closed. There was like ICQ, AOL's AIM, MSN, the Microsoft network. Those are gone. They're gone. If you relied on that network, those networks do not exist. MSN may have merged with Skype at some point. I mean, who knows? But they were closed. The companies running them ran out of interest. ICQ is now owned by some Russian company. It's been rebooted. I don't know if my you know original ICQ number from when ICQ was a thing still works. I'm not sure. It might. Um, but AOL shut down AIM. AOL got merged with Yahoo and purchased by Verizon. Um... You rely on these services that are closed, the companies will close them down. I'm sure most people listening to this have had that experience with these these cloud tools, right? You're using some tool, the company gets purchased and shut down or goes out of business because their business model didn't work. And you're stuck with a copy of your data that's hard to use. In almost every case, there's nothing you can do about it but go find a new one, right? A lot of people switched over to Google Reader to read their RSS feeds, which was a very open standard, right? RSS was a very open standard. You publish these articles, you can go read it, you could have a reader on your computer. Again, RSS is still out there, especially because it's built into WordPress and there's a lot of WordPress websites. So, you know, RSS is a thing people can access. RSS is part of how podcasts work, um, at least today. You've got all of this stuff, right, where people are using these services and then it gets closed down and and if you didn't have your feeds backed up from Google, which I doubt most people did, you're kind of left, well, how do I read my feeds now? And some, some competitors popped up, but it was after the fact, after the majority of people had switched over because they really liked that interface. Whereas if you're running a local reader, Google Reader disappearing probably didn't bother you. Right? And, and same thing with these chat networks. And, and what are the, how do people chat today? Right? And, and chat... You know, I'm using it in the broadest sense, sending a text message as a chat. We've got WhatsApp, iMessage, Hangouts, Facebook Messenger, WeChat, Viber, Telegram, Signal, Snapchat, and Voxer. Um, of those, Hangouts and Facebook Messenger at one point had an open, or it wasn't called Hangouts, it was called Google Talk, or some people called it GChat. They had an open format for communicating with one another. No more. Google Hangouts still has a way you can connect in that works. They said they're going to turn it off, and they just haven't. I think they maybe forgot. Um, and who knows how much longer Hangouts will last before they replace it with the you know what they're currently using as business Hangouts. None of those are are open networks that you can use multiple clients on. Um, Signal is at least open source, so someone could run their own network with it if they wanted to. Um, you know, you've got Snapchat, Voxer, all that stuff's closed. The only open stuff right now are XMPP, also known as Jabber, which was is how you would talk to Google uh, Chat with Hangouts, um, and used to be able to talk to Facebook that way. And they used to actually be able to federate. So you you know, and if you're on an XMPP server today, you can federate. Meaning, if I'm on my server and you're on yours, 
we can still communicate with one another, which is great, right? It's the way email works. If I'm on my email server and you're on your email server, we can still send each other emails. Chat should work that way. IMs should work that way, but the, but it, it doesn't. It doesn't because we're all using these closed services. And of course, you have to use whatever service your friends are on. The only other option besides XMPP that's open right now is the Matrix protocol. It's It allows federation in the same way email and Jabber do, and it's actually mobile friendly. So I'd love to see some take up of Matrix. And maybe at some point I'll set up a Matrix chat room for, for brighter evening, and it would be cool to see people come in there and participate. Um, you know, another another example of this sort of deterioration is the open web, right? Going to a web browser, getting what you need versus what happens in apps. You can't deep link into apps. You can't link to a certain page in an app. You can't share information in an app. Apps are closed. They're very closed compared to a website. And we all know that for certain things, you want the app version, not the web version on your phone. But we also all, I think, realize at some level that that's not 100% a positive thing because with the web, you can borrow someone's computer and log in. And if it's an app, it doesn't quite work that way. And I think there's some other more philosophical reasons that drive at what we're talking about here, the, the future that we could have had and that we don't have. It's the fact that we had a more open system and we're moving to a more closed version of it. Even the websites that we go to often are very closed in their nature, right? You can't do almost anything on Facebook unless you're logged in. Twitter's a little bit more open that way, right? Many of these services are these closed services that you, they're, they're not fully open. And maybe that's a bit more of a shaky distinction, um, but, but I do feel like that's related. Podcasts are one of the only open things that's relatively new, at least like last 20 years, right? It's, it's relatively open and widely in use. People like podcasts. People listen to podcasts. You're listening to one right now. Thank you. Um, they use technology from the early 2000s. They use RSS, really simple syndication. It's a way to send information like summaries and, or articles from your blog so people can read it where they want to. And you don't have to use a central hosting service. I don't use a central hosting service for Brighter Evening. I have a different hosting service that I use. Spotify is trying to change that. They're trying to find a way to have a closed platform version of podcasts because the original definition of podcast really came from, you know, iPod casting, right? It was the way Apple defined it, which was you have an RSS feed with a special format and it links to audio files or video files and then you can download them automatically, synchronize them to your iPod. And that that was the definition. It used RSS. I don't think most people think of it that way. I think most people think of a podcast as I hit play and someone starts talking and they've got a show. And for that, well... You don't need to be open, right? For that definition, openness and the standard aren't important. Spotify is looking to change it, and they've they've been making moves in this direction. They just signed a $100 million deal with Joe Rogan for his podcast to be exclusive to Spotify. Joe Rogan's the most popular podcaster there is, and it's clear their goal is to own a podcasting platform to be able to differentiate themselves to get a much greater share of the advertising revenue and to share that of course with the people producing the podcasts it's the same strategy google used by centralizing much more effectively the advertising inventory they're able to sell more advertising right they're able to fill more of it because you didn't have to go to 100 websites and establish relationships you could go to one And I understand the business reasons for Spotify wanting to do it. I certainly understand why Joe Rogan would want to take that money. Right? It's a, it's a lot of money. I feel strongly about this, but for $100 million, it would be hard to say no. I won't move my podcast. Right? That's that's a tremendous amount of money. It would be very, very hard to say no to that. And so Spotify is working on taking an open standard that people use and creating a closed version of it.
We talked about the BBS scene, how these early networks were just hobbyists. It cost people money to run this stuff, and yet they still did it because it was fun, because it was meaningful to them, because the computer was a tool, and for them it was a hobby. And it was something that served them, served their needs, and they're willing to pay to do that. That's the stuff that we want, right? We want to be empowered. We want these incredible machines that are so so capable, right? They can display videos, they can record audio, they can do tremendous amounts of computation. They can modify stuff, they can do artificial intelligence learning, right? All this AI stuff that's in the news right now. You can do that on your computer right now, right? That's that's not something you need special hardware for. You can do it right now. If you if you want to go learn it, you can. That's what's made made computers such a revolution, right? That what has made computing a revolution in the world is the fact that it's a general purpose machine and it's gotten more powerful, right? For about 50 years, Moore's Law marched on them. We're still trying, right? As, as an industry, the computer companies are trying to do what they can to make these computers more powerful still. So what of the future? We've, we've talked about the past. We've talked about where things were headed, what was available. Computers have gotten better and faster and easier to use. But they haven't gotten more open. They've gotten less open. They've become more of an appliance designed and built by someone else to serve their needs, not to serve yours. They'll serve yours as much as necessary to get you to buy it, but no more. Right? They're going to make it easy. They're going to make it seductive. And then they're going to make sure that they own what they can. But what of the future? Are we condemned to a future where we're stuck with machines that we don't truly own? Or is there something to be done? Well, in the desktop computing world, um, there there is still the, the option of installing whatever you want. right? You can, in Windows, still install software that you want, and in Mac OS as well. It get, gets a little harder. You can also switch operating systems. You can install Linux and become a Linux user. A lot of software that you might want to use is out there, but possibly not all of it. Things have gotten better with some of those categories, like games and stuff. But there, there's still certain software like Photoshop that's just not out there, and if that's important to you, you're going to have a hard time, unless you run it in a virtual machine or something. You know, raises the bar of difficulty in some cases. Not significantly, but it does. Um, but that hardware is still open. It's still something like 1.5% of users. I don't think that that percentage is growing, but in absolute terms, that number of people may still be growing. It's, it's hard to say because that's a very hard group to estimate because there's no sales data associated with desktop Linux use. Linux use in um, supercomputers is 100%. Uh, top 500 supercomputers, 100% are running Linux, which is crazy. And in the server world, it's mostly Linux. Even un, even Microsoft is, you know, putting a lot of support into Linux to try to, you know, get it to run well in their cloud platform. Um, so I think in desktop, you know, you've got you've got the Linux world as a, as a kernel and an operating system. You have the GNU community, which is uh, is very closely related and, and provides a lot of the tools that run on top of Linux. Um, as a as a user, if you're running Ubuntu or Red Hat or something, you wouldn't necessarily need to know the difference or see the difference, but it is distinct groups working on lots of software that make it available largely for free. Um, and a lot of it's really cool, high-quality stuff. There's some really neat user interfaces. There's some really plain-Jane user interfaces. If you want to be Mr. All text mode, you can be Mr. All text mode. If you want to have your desktop on a cube, you can do it. And that's that stuff's all cool to me. Um, you know, the flexibility that's available if you want it. There's the Raspberry Pi. Um, Raspberry Pi is, you know, we talked about it's a, a really inexpensive computer that's sold without a case, and it's it's very small um, and, and rather powerful for how small it is. Um, it's very similar to a lot of cell phone hardware. Um, similar processors and designs and stuff. It, uh, you know, it's not as fast as the highest end cell phones that are out there because it's much cheaper for one thing. Um, but it's 
it's designed with openness in mind, and they're working each release to make more and more of how it works open to the world, um, and make it so that you know people can can do stuff. And there's uh, some of that as well, even in the really low level world of the very first thing the computer does when you hit the power switch. Between that and when the operating system starts, which is a very short period of time, there are people working to make that all the way open. There are people working to make an all the way open um, even even processor, right? Where you can download the specifications for the processor and and put your own on a special chip called an FPGA and make your own changes. It's really interesting stuff. Um, it's a small group doing that stuff. That group does exist, and with the Raspberry Pi being so inexpensive and so widely available and so open, there's some hope for people to experiment and learn, especially younger people who you know want to spend a little bit of money and you know not a fortune and and get into this sort of thing. I think in the desktop world and the hobbyist world, we're probably okay for a while. Um, I don't I don't think that they're going to do anything to lock things down too much because the the desktop computer hardware is in essence identical to the um, server hardware and so if Linux is in the servers they're going to have to keep it open enough that you can switch and run what you want at least you have to be able to run Linux and Windows um, and Mac OS for as long as it's on the same hardware as, as other personal computers by the way that's a personal pet peeve of mine that Apple said you know we're Macs we're not PCs PC stands for personal computer I mean Macs are personal computers they're not servers they're not you know communal whatever they're they're a personal computer just like a windows machine um that just has always rubbed me the wrong way for some reason um but it's a pet peeve it doesn't really matter um so you've got desktops you've got you know options to run stuff there with with linux and freebsd and stuff and haiku and and temple os if you want to you want to see something really crazy google search temple os uh, it's it's one of the wilder operating systems out there. It's it's pretty obscure, but I came across it once and uh, I never forgot it. I've never run it. I've just seen it online. Um, there's uh, Purism and Pine are two companies that are are producing phones that run a completely documented open platform. So they're they're targeting running Linux software. Android is based on Linux. Also, um, it's just like a really weird version of Linux. So they're they're taking Linux and running a more traditional version of Linux, but with phone applications built on top of it. Uh, so you you'll have uh, you know mail application, dialer application, all the stuff you'd expect on a cell phone. And they want to do this in a completely open way. Both of them. It's a lot harder with phone hardware, and the hardware doesn't look that nice yet because these are small outfits, but they don't look bad. And and it's really great to see people moving in the direction of something different, something more open. I guess the last thing I would bring up is this idea that we move from commercialization to commoditization over time. Um, when when you think about the future. Right, you think about you're in the future of Star Wars or Star Trek. They go to this computer system. You know, when it's uh, you know, RTD2 plugging into the thing and and looking kind of hacking into the Death Star to find out where Princess Leia is being kept. He's not like, "Oh gosh, you know, this is uh this is free BSD. Uh, gee, I don't know how to communicate with it. It just kind of worked." Same thing in Star Trek. They have a computer system and it's programmed. And the chips come from somewhere or another. Well, it's probably mentioned in some episode. But the computer is just there. It's essentially a commodity. You know, They know it's a powerful computer because it needs to be to run a starship, I guess. But you don't think of these uh, future sci-fi worlds as being ones where the you know, there's a commercial manufacturer of this stuff in the same sense that there is today. It's sort of, sort of a commodity. And we've seen that happen with a lot of technologies. Um, you know, you you think about cloth, and, and you know, cloth is somewhat a commodity. Clothing are somewhat a commodity. Cars are somewhat a commodity, right? Any car you buy is going to meet all the standards of the very best cars, you know, from however many years ago, right? 
you buy the cheapest car for sale today, it's going to have at least power front windows, an automatic transmission, probably over 100 horsepower in the engine. It's going to get good fuel economy. It'll probably have air conditioning and a radio. If you go back 25 or 30 years, that's not the case. Now, we do look at the style. There are new features that come out where cars differentiate themselves. So we're willing to pay different amounts for different cars, but there's a certain amount of commoditization of the individual components. I think that maybe, eventually, we'll kind of get there. We sort of see that with text messages to a certain extent, like actual text messages and SMS. It's a commodity. It's all the same everywhere. But when you add things like iMessage on top of it, it's different. Or um, RCS is kind of the the other side, other thing that's similar to it that that is an alternative. Um, I think I think there's other software that can kind of be SMS or not SMS. Signal is one of them. But you've got this stuff that like you've got this commodity version that everyone can do, and it works everywhere, and it's a good standard. SIM cards are that way. So maybe there's going to be some level of commoditization that's going to make these systems more standard over time, right? Maybe if, at some point, not maybe, at some point, smartphones won't be that cool anymore. It doesn't mean they'll be gone. But even now, the release of a new smartphone is not nearly as exciting as it was a few years ago, right? If you think back to 2012 when a new smartphone came out, you were reading the specs like, oh, wow, this thing has a front-facing camera. Now I can video chat. I can take selfies. That's pretty neat. I can't believe they got that in there. Oh, wow, now it's got a longer battery life and it can do 4G. Oh, man, that's going to open things up because now I can do this so fast. Now when a new phone comes out, you're like, oh, yeah, it's got a better camera. Oh, it's got face recognition to unlock instead of the fingerprint. Yeah, I guess that's pretty good. The features are great, but they're not exciting like they once were. So I think that may impact some things as the phones internally get more similar. Maybe it'll be possible to open them up more. Maybe that'll happen with other things. It's hard to say. At the end of the day, we vote with our feet and our wallets. The companies are going to produce things that we're going to buy and we're going to buy what we value. So it's up to you as a listener to choose what you value. And I hope that you'll value openness and configurability and you'll you'll make the choice. Sometimes, sometimes, you have to give up a little bit for something better, right? You, you can't always put a price on freedom, but sometimes the price is, I'm going to do something that's a little bit harder for me to learn, but I'm going to learn it because at the end I'm free. So as you go out into the world... Think about the, f- the past we had. What brought us to this amazing place in technology where computers have become so powerful and usable, right? It was the fact that they became more powerful, less expensive, and they were so flexible. And how over the last 15 or so years, we've eroded that flexibility and that programmability. It's harder now to do stuff than it's than it should be. That's not to say everything's harder. A lot of things are easier. And in fact, now is a good time to pick up programming because there's a lot of resources out there. But our, our platforms aren't designed with that in mind. They're designed with extracting value from you, extracting money from you, whether that's directly through getting you to buy stuff through their system or indirectly through advertising or through licensing fees to people who put stuff on the system. Somehow they're trying to drive value from you. They're trying to get money because you're there. That's the focus. And we want to have a world. I hope you join me in wanting to have a world where the focus is on that machine serving you to achieve your goals. And that may mean, if you really want to make it happen, it may mean sacrificing a little bit of usability and features now so that you can have that future, right? If you only buy the software that, or the devices that allow you to customize them well, and you learn how to do that, you're going to be more empowered, and you're going to encourage more software like that to be created, right? If you've got to use for Push Bullet, go use Push Bullet. Push Bullet's a tool that lets you automate stuff with your phone. And if you've got a use for, you know, automating tasks, Go pick up a little bit of programming. 
You know, learn learn to write a script. Learn to write a little bit of Python. You don't have to become a professional programmer. You don't have to write good code. Just learn a little bit. See how hard it is. See if you can figure out how to make the computer do what you want. It's an amazing feeling when you made the computer do something because you wanted it to. And no one else made it. You did it. So vote with your feet. Vote with your wallet. We've lost the future we could have had in our present, but we still have the possibility of having an even brighter future. And that's up to each one of us to contribute, whether that's through contributing to the community or contributing by following the right things or buying the right things or, or emphasizing the right stuff or evangelizing the idea of freedom. The future we lost was a future where the computer served us, and that's a future we can regain. I thank you for listening tonight. My name is Josh, and this is Brighter Evening. Thank you for listening to Brighter Evening. I hope I've made your evening brighter. You can subscribe to us by RSS on Google or Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information on the show or this episode, please visit brighterevening.com.